0: Uh, Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode 22, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Dennis Church. Um, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Dr. Church is a licensed clinical psychologist, founder of the Center for Compassion-Focused Therapy in New York, author of six books, one of which we have the pleasure of reading and discussing today. It's called The Compassionate Mind Guide to Overcoming Anxiety. Dr. Turch, should I, number one, did I get your name pronounced correctly? Number two, um, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit beyond what I've said?
1: I want to thank you for having me here, and the name pronunciation sounds good to me. It, it's Turch, and sometimes people say Turch, and I don't I'm just cool with whatever it is. It's just nice to be here speaking with you. And it's, uh, yeah, I'm, a, you know, worked with compassion focused therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, Buddhist psychology, and acceptance and commitment therapy for many years. And really with a focus on cultivating courage and helping people use compassion to train the mind and body to respond to anxiety and threats in new ways. That's kind of, my wife, Laura Silverstein, Tersh, and I, that's the pond that we swim in. That's our life's work. And as a result, it's wonderful to be here to talk about these things with you.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm super excited. I also was reading in your biography, you play a little country blues style kirtan music. <laughs> what's, what's going on with that? You know, I've been a guitar player
1: for about 40 years. I'm 52. And it's a passion, and a consuming passion. And over the last few years, blending spirituality with different forms of guitar, like country blues, fingerpicking, or or jazz manouche, kind of like stuff. It's just trying to fold different world traditions in to create music that has, you know, resonance is sort of a big passion uh, of mine and of my buddies.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, ping you at some point to get some audio clips of that. I'd love to hear. Oh, awesome. Um, maybe that would even be a cool thing to hear in the in this episode. But um, I guess what I'm really excited to talk to you about today, which seems to be your life work, is uh, compassion. Because I, I have the sneaking suspicion in my own anxiety journey that it's kind of the missing ingredient. For, for doing therapy or just doing life in a way that's not just kind of achieving ends or achieving goals or doing exposures, but maybe um, having a decent time as we go about uh, doing some of the hard work. So can you talk a little bit about, because this is the first time I've I'd even heard of something called Compassion-Focused Therapy. Can you talk a little bit about that? what that is and, and what the goal of it is?
1: Oh, absolutely. Thank you for asking. And I, I really appreciate The way you described compassion and perhaps the role of compassion in working with anxiety is bigger than symptom reduction or bigger than, you know, uh, specific therapy goals. And more, uh, as you said, having a decent time, having a decent life, like living. Compassion itself has a definition that is rather old, but also that is uh, now being applied in new ways. And that definition is a sensitivity to the presence of suffering in ourselves or others combined with a dedication to do something about it. Sensitivity to the presence of suffering blended with a commitment and a dedication to do something about it. And Compassion-Focused Therapy, is a form of therapy, form of psychotherapy that was developed originally by uh, Paul Gilbert in the UK, and further has been studied and researched the world over. And that form of therapy integrates elements of Buddhist compassion training with meditative practices and with a number of evidence-based therapy traditions to, to help people use their body's innate Capacity for compassion and warmth, and grounding, to better deal with threats and anxiety.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. It it sounds super useful. But I'm, I'm kind of wondering why it seems, and maybe uh, this is from the outside looking in, but it feels kind of niche. Why? Why isn't compassion um, more of a centerpiece in like cognitive behavioral therapy or one of the first things maybe that a therapist would would talk to you about? Because I, I haven't encountered it that much and I've had plenty of anxiety therapists. So mm. w- what's the story there? It's a very good
1: question. And, you know, in my own life as a person with anxiety problems, you know, I publicly identify as having PTSD and ADD and, and I've had a lot of struggles like a lot of us, right? And a lot of therapy. <laughs> um, And I came to becoming a therapist after a lot of years studying Buddhism and studying contemplative traditions and and like mystical traditions where compassion was central to the transformational process, like recognizing your own interconnectedness with all being and understanding that underneath your individuality. There is a, a flow of life, a flow of loving awareness that you're part of. In those traditions, the techniques are about accessing that, and that liberates you from suffering. It lib- helps to liberate you from the grip of fear and and greed and threat. For thousands of years, you know that's been practiced as a way to liberate ourselves from anxious suffering and from shame and self blame. And somehow, you know, empathy is referenced and. And throughout the different, you know, uh, client-centered therapies and uh, Roger's work and Genlin and, and you know, the therapeutic alliances discussed a lot and uh, different ex- experiential therapies, emotion-focused therapy, CBT, all, all the different alphabet soup of CBTs and FBIs and KGBs, you know. Like, so through all that, the concept's kind of obliquely referenced, but it's not really until like the beginning of this century that, you know, mainstream scientific psychology started to really take a good hard look at what the term compassion references and, you know, the good work of people like Paul Gilbert and and other colleagues and Kristen Neff and the people at, you know, the Stanford uh, and the greater good science uh, kind of and good old Matthew Ricard, those kind of folks started to, to understand that human beings from the moment that we're born until the moment we die, the presence of warmth, care, and compassion will affect our health and well-being at every level from our heart rate variability to our presence of mind to our pro-social engagement. And part of the reason for that we is that we, we've evolved so that warmth And care and compassion and kindness actually downregulate our threat detection systems. They downregulate excessive arousal. They lead to greater heart rate variability. They help us to deal with stress better. We really function at our best when we feel emotionally connected, emotionally safe, and socially safe. And when we have a flow of compassion in and compassion out. And that realization. The, the evolutionary, emotional neuroscience, and behavior psychology realizing that compassion could and should be a more central variable that we target has been pre-revolutionary. But as you suggest, Joshua, it's like it hasn't quite spread in the same way that it it could and and that it will actually as as a as a. Uh, as a target for therapy interventions.
0: It'll happen, it's happening, but it's slow. Yeah, thanks for that answer. I think it's it's slow even in um, something that has taken off, at least with, I think, greater speed, which is just kind of mindfulness full stop, you know, like meditation and concentration and doing stuff with your breath. Like, I, I feel like even within that community, there is like the two wings, right? One is attention and then one is compassion. But I I almost feel like in its uh, boiled down version, um, or the way it's distilled and maybe offered to larger groups, uh, maybe the common denominator of mindfulness also doesn't seem to highlight compassion until maybe you get into it a a little bit deeper. Do, Do you think that's fair to say? Oh, yeah.
1: It's completely fair to say. And I think... You know the, the 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 historical teachers Siddhartha Artha Gautama that's referred to as like the one who woke up or the Buddha, the historical Buddha, the teachings that are attributed to that figure uh, in the Pali Canon and, um, and that make up the corpus of like the oldest form of Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism. Like it took about five hundred years before there was a radical shift in the ideal of the Dharma. In, in India and Asia from the original teachings of the Buddha which were about individual awakening and equanimity and like compassion was not as central. 500 years later, the bodhisattva ideal and an idea of interconnectedness being essential and the idea that compassion was the n- n- most important factor in waking up. So given that the first time around this took five hundred years for people we're probably going at a faster pace <laughs> uh, in the last twenty years than than the 500 year track but there's there's probably a lot of reasons why psychologically and socioculturally that people they shy away from the idea of compassion maybe it self-compassion has been a little bit easier to take for people than compassion in general which is interesting hmm
0: yeah, that is interesting. I've actually heard the opposite where self compass well, at least like I, I took the live online mindful self compassion course and they cool. suggested that yeah, yeah, it was it was a, a good program. I've learned to publicly uh rub my heart or chest mm-hmm. with my hand without feeling embarrassed now. So nice. that's uh that's a plus for me there. But I yeah, I've heard from them that um offering ourselves compassion um is sometimes seen as, you know, like weak. Uh, I guess, in our society. You know, that's kind of true. But if you look at the
1: data analytics for how many people are searching for self-compassion versus compassion, or the broadness of adoption within psychotherapy traditions of self-compassion as opposed to compassion, uh, because I've looked at that stuff. And what you'll see is that it's generated a lot more interest and a lot more research and there's many, many more people who want to adopt self compassion than the idea of like a compassion focused therapy or the uh, compassion cultivation training program. Um, I think targeting shame and having compassion for ourselves uh, has a little more traction in some ways, even though I'm not, I'm not ref- refuting the idea that self compassion is, you know, in the mainstream, let's say, you know, like still not taken as seriously as it ought to be, self-kindness, self-compassion. But I would suggest that like espousing compassion like for others and self as just one thing, like the idea that there is this mode of being, this default setting, your inner nature, the wisdom that you were born with, your birthright, is to have a flow of giving and receiving care that connects you to all beings and that that when you are in that caring mode that, that you're at your best, that's been even slower to really land with people. It might be because it's a little more complicated. Hmm. It might be because it sounds like we're telling people to be nice or to be soft or woo-woo, <laughs> but it's uh, it's definitely, it's surprisingly alien to people often.
0: Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that perspective, especially if you've got the the data to back it up. Uh, I mean, I'm super keen on having people on this podcast that really know their stuff. And, <laughs> it, you know, you're looking at the data analytics for Google search queries on self-compassion. Well, that's a, a perspective I surely welcome.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah, it was a funny conversation. Like, you know, my whole life is about this stuff. And I was talking to somebody who's helping me with the web and they said, I had this blog about self compassion, and the person said, Well, no, you can't use that. I was like, What are you talking about? They're like, Oh, there's, you you know, there's just so many, there's so much interest in it, and there's so many people writing blogs about it. Like, you know, you have to write a blog about a different topic. And I was like, Okay, I get it, but I don't care. (laughs) It's like, you know, because like if you're like a a space scientist and somebody's, you know, you're going to write a blog about space. And then I'm like, no, you should write about the ocean because there's too many people writing about space. Like, I don't, sorry, buddy, like, we're just going to have to go with what you know here, you know. Uh, but it was interesting when I started looking at it and I was kind of shocked at how self-compassion has really grown, you know. And Kristen Neff and Chris Germer are friends of ours and, and their work at disseminating and promoting their approach has been really important and really taken off. Whereas it's still kind of hard. To get people to like get the idea that you know, compassion for for others and also receiving compassion from others are really, really, really important.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this is this is making so many questions spawn in my head. Cool. Um But but I am glad just as an aside that you're not uh obeying the commands of your SEO specialist and <laughs> Writing on whatever pleases you, especially if it's your life work. You got to have a balance, you know? You want people to
1: to find... Here's an old saying, Sufi saying, that the reason there's fool's gold is because real gold exists, you know? And I think compassion, science, and understanding how to train the mind in resilience and psychological flexibility and compassion, that's real gold. Like, that's real gold. And so if there's a way that we can reach more people with it, you know, I'm open to however it, it, it can reach the people who need it, like, which is all of us.
0: So in that scenario, the fool's gold are the blog posts that like sort of gesture at the self-compassion but don't do a great job of explaining you know, it or something that, like that. That
1: works really that's good too I was thinking the Fool's gold is just the whole SEO thing mm. do you know what I mean like hey here's five ways that you can <laughs> liberate yourself from the boobity booby bop. <laughs> and it's like really man like but if that if that's if that's how you can you know you can get it out to people and they'll see it rather than it getting buried you know in the middle of like the interwebs then whatever.
0: Yeah. And wasn't the Buddha famous for making lists? So like top five ways to liberate yourself (laughs) might, might actually track.
1: You know, the joke then you, you know, you know, do you you know the joke that's based on that?
0: What's the joke?
1: I love it. I love it, Joshua. Like it's a, you know, like Christians love Jesus and Buddhists love lists is the, is the joke. (laughs) And, uh, it's kind of true. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's interesting.
1: Um, I say that as as a Buddhist and as a, as a as a lay Dharma teacher in Zen, so it's not meant to be uh, judgy.
0: Oh, um, yeah, I, lists are great. I mean, they're they're great yeah. for productivity. Um, so, so let me ask you a question, um, just to dig into the book a little bit more. Sure. So, there's a character in the book who uh, I think is a real character, but maybe her name might have been changed. She's a her name is Jennifer, and she's dealing with anxiety. And on page five, there's this sentence that says, we focused on her self-criticism and her sense that something was wrong with her, a feeling of some inner flaw so common in people who struggle with anxiety. And that, that really re- resonated with me because, and maybe with everyone, it's curious to think that a lot of anxiety comes with a critic, um, like, it, mm. is, is there is there situations, or is it the case that people have anxiety without the critic? Um, like, how often do they overlap? Like, is that the crux of the... Is that why compassion is useful for treating anxiety? Because there's a critic there that needs to be soothed? Or like, how how necessary is the critic's kind of appearance in, in this um, kind of situation?
1: Wonderful. Wonderful questions, actually. And kind of taking them... I want to honor each of them. You will find people from time to time who struggle with anxiety problems and are not particularly self-critical or shame prone. And if we think of shame as a sense of personal, like, like an emotional kind of mode of being where you feel like a sense of being devalued or that you might be held in the minds of others as less than or worthless, that can also be a sense of yourself, evaluating yourself as being bad and worthless. And like there are folks who don't have chronic or severe shame, who have anxiety problems. But I think they more often than not, in my clinical experience, they they arrive together, you know? And also shame, we know from the literature that transdiagnostically, shame and chronic shame make make it harder to treat anxiety problems and all, actually all problems, hmm. you know, psychologically. Like if somebody has severe shame problems, all therapies are going to have a tricky time. So that's one of the reasons why Paul Gilbert and his team in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, like began developing compassion focused therapy to deal with people who had chronic shame, who weren't responding to interventions for depression, and anxiety. So there are those folks who don't really have severe shame, but a lot of the people you'll see who really, you know, are having a hard time treating the anxiety will have chronic shame or severe self-criticism. And I think it's really, really, it's very common. There's there's more to it in tune with the other uh, questions that you had, but I, I just want to pause there and let that maybe just kick it around for a moment but rather than just keep going. Does that make sense so far that like you can have it, you can have anxiety problems without having shame problems, but more often than not, they'll be there together and like they make it harder to treat the shame.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm totally, I totally get that. And it's really interesting and it's, you know, it's sad for those, it almost sounds like it's like the third arrow or something. You have like Mm. the thing that bugs you, the anxiety about it, the shame that's almost like the most heartbreaking part of it I think is the shame more so than the anxiety because you have people you know beating themselves up for something that you know they they're not at fault for. That's that's
1: very poignant the way you put it. I mean shame a sense that you're unlovable in some way and it, it strikes to some core human survival need, a core human you know, dimension of, dimension of not just what makes us survive, but what allows life to be, to feel worth living. And the other really important part, and I'll try to say this with real economy because it's kind of a complicated thing and I've been trying to get it across for years, but it kind of takes a moment. So human beings, like all animals have a really sensitive threat detection system. And that's necessary. If you think about like natural selection and evolution, designing a species, you'd need the first thing is that it has to stay alive, right? Because if you don't stay alive long enough to procreate, or you don't stay alive, uh, you know, for the for genetic material to keep moving, well, then the light, the, the the species just ends. And most species do end, you know, eventually, like most species wind up extinct. And, and it's really hard for a species to make it on this planet. Humans, you know, we're having a reasonably good run of it. <laughs> and a big part of, of that has to do with our unique threat detection system. So we have this 24-7, always-on, highly sensitive, highly attuned threat detection system. And our main evolutionary advantage is the way we think and the way we use language and the way we interact. The way we cooperate and the way we care, and so much of that has to do with our brain and our brain's ability to use symbols and thoughts and imagination to, you know, interpret the rest of the world. and And in order for that and, and our actions in the world, in order to have a brain that big, you you, you have a pretty big skull and a, a brain that needs a lot of a lot of food when it's in utero. So we're, we're born with these brains that are only sort of half cooked, we're born pretty helpless relative to a lot of animals where they're born like like if a horse is born, it just pops out, it starts running around. <laughs> Humans aren't like that. We need lots of time to develop the words and the language and the skills that we need in order to function in the world. So we have this species that has a really low birth rate and infant mortality is very high without modern medicine. And it's really it, the birth is jeopardizes the mother as well. So the life of any individual human being, like, is really really important for the species' survival more than a lot of other animals. Like a turtle has like three thousand eggs, and like if only one percent or two percent make it, that's fine for mm-hmm. the turtle. Like it's just the way it is. But we also have these fragile children, ch- fragile infants. So like in in order to keep them safe, we have these strong attachment bonds, which Create these really, really protective set of behaviors from the parents, and also like the need to find proximity and emotional security and connectedness is like really important for the attachment behaviors of the baby. So all of our attachment and affiliation repertoires and all of the structures in the brain they're so important for our survival and they're intimately tied up with our threat system. So human beings, when we experience warmth and care and security and compassion, and when we feel that we can, we feel safe. We have a secure base that allows us to feel like we can rest and ground. And, and we also sometimes feel like safe enough to be playful or explore or have courage. So as it turns out, like having a stable inner attachment system and the ability to activate things like the oxytocin system, the polyvagal complex, all of the neural architecture and hormonal architecture of warmth care and giving and receiving care, all of that is like really intimately tied into how well we can regulate anxiety, not just shame, but anxiety itself, right? So if we have like abuse or neglect or impingement or chronically threatening environments or parents who are like well-intentioned and and very kind, but maybe they have severe anxiety. Or so many of us have multi-generational trauma in our families. so many problems, right, with wars and depressions. So we have this like really compromised uh, series of factors that will compromise the development of an inner attachment system, an internalized compassion system. And that is precisely what is involved in down-regulating our threat response. So therapy is, in compassion-focused therapy, is about building this inner attachment system, this inner caring system, so that we have this neural architecture that allows us to overcome the threats of uh, that are generated by the mind and anxiety, and also to generate the social threat of unlovability that shows up with shame. That's kind of Trying to in a nutshell encapsulate the, all the questions that come up around this.
0: Yeah, well, that's really thorough, and I appreciate the the comprehensiveness there. I don't mean to to pick a fight with evolution, but why don't we wh- why don't we get this for free? Like, why why do we need the stable, loving caretakers to to build the inner uh, attachment, inner soothing system? You know, it seems very very useful. So I'm kind of wondering. And I don't know if you can answer this question, but why don't we just get it for free from our genes? That's a really kind
1: of a good question. And when you say for free, like why why does that not emerge as a um, like a pre birth heritable like repertoire rather than something you kind of have to learn?
0: Yeah, like you know whether or not my there's good smells in the house, I still wind up with a nose, you know. But apparently, super awesome. You know, I don't get the compassion system for that free. Said,
1: you know, nobody's ever asked me that, and it's really great. You actually do get it for free. It, the system's there. Like, the biological substrate of it is there. And what's sort of... The best guess we have, like, you know, all evolutionary psychology, a little bit is speculative, you know, but it, mm-hmm. it kind of hangs together. Um, The brain we have is, you know, not terribly changed over the past like several 10,000 years or hundreds of thousands of years you know certainly like it's a very similar brain and it and it has inside it like structures and uh, behavioral if you will like um, like programs or or algorithms that are older than humans. We, In many ways, we have like the brain of a reptile. I'm sure you've seen like McLean's triune brain. We have a brain of a reptile that's wrapped in, uh, around, wrapped around it is there is a brain of a mammal. And then around that, we have a primate. And then we have our human prefrontal cortex. So we have this very tricky brain. And it, it is kind of a collision of all of these different, you know, epochal uh, ways of, that living things are in the world. And what happens is, even though the brain hasn't changed that much, and our bodies, in many ways, haven't changed over several millennia, society and technology has a lot, and and human behavioral patterns have enormously. Um, it's kind of one of the side effects of having like a like a sort of a supercomputer ish brain, metaphorically, which even even more powerful than a supercomputer. It adapts. It has parallel processing. It finds symbols. It changes, and then we pass on that information. So. So what where we're at now is, you know, you have a brain and a body that was basically designed for caring and sharing algorithms to be dominant in small groups of people, like originally around the savannas in Africa, like reasonable climate for our bodies with lots of co-parenting, lots of caring relationships, looking after each other, alloparenting, and resources basically not being like hoarded through agriculture or cities and things like that. You know, that's kind of like what we're designed for. And then with, the, you know, the kind of growth and change of human societies, civilizations, algorithms, you now have a situation where there's greater comfort, there's greater medicine, there's like hyper collaboration so that like I'm looking at a can of water, you know, sparkling water. There's like probably hundreds of people were involved in just bringing this thing into existence and poof, it's here right in front of me. And there's a screen in front of me that in a given, probably in a day or a week, I will probably see more images of competition and potentially violence or struggle or you know uh, money or greed or sex—all those images I'll see more in a week, let's say, than my than generations of ancestors would have seen. Generations of them. So we have this kind of overdriven competition system in our societies. We have an overdriven threat system. We have like wars and depressions and. In, in, insufficient allocation of resources, all that stuff together ha- predisposes us to be stuck in competition and threat mode. And we've cu- kind of like have a harder time with our social systems just cultivating and activating a general sense of warmth and interconnectedness and safeness. That's basically, you know, that's the company answer <laughs> on this one. That's that's how it's tended to be seen within the CFD community.
0: Got it. Yeah. Thanks for that. There's some that reminds me a little bit in the book, you make this distinction between uh, sort of the brains that we got through genetics and then our conditioning. And I think the metaphor you use is sort of hardware as referring to the genetic inheritance and then software, mostly the stuff you just um, enumerated there at the end of your answer about conditioning and culture um, and all of that. But I do have a question here because that was just a statement. So on page 15, it talks a little bit about how if you have an anxiety problem or some trigger or something's coming up, it can be hard either for ourselves or for others to talk us down because for some reason, even if our even if the thing we're afraid of is irrational, it's somehow not always effective to try to use logic or other thoughts or like rational reasons uh, for why our anxiety is not merited. And, and therefore it's not, the, it's not maybe always the most useful tool for um, reconnecting us you know with something that feels safe. So is is how I guess how widespread would you say, is that failure of being able to use logic to talk you know someone off the ledge? And also is that one of the reasons why there's an opportunity here for compassion uh, because you know just simple explanation doesn't always do the trick? You know, when I began grad school in the early 90s, It was
1: the beginning of cognitive behavior therapy really, really finding its ascendancy in the field and particularly around anxiety. And it came after decades of the idea that like insight, some kind of concept of insight, which we don't talk about very much, but people would have like realizations and they have understandings and insight, and that would lead to, you know, personal change. And instead there was this shift towards rationality and logic and perspective taking and that that would be more what would be useful. Alongside like just raw exposure to fear until you get your fear system. We call it the fear system being exhausted. So there's like an idea that you would gain insight and that was around as a popular main process and there's this idea that rationality and logic and exposure to anxiety, then that would be the healing thing. And then I guess like maybe 15 20 years later the mindfulness and acceptance kind of revolution what they call the third wave of behavior therapies and psychotherapy kind of happened and like the zeitgeist everywhere from like Oprah and Eckhart Tolle and everything to like you know uh, you know yoga places popping up everywhere and 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 evidence based therapies that are derived from meditation like mindfulness and Acceptance and commitment therapy, Brene Brown, all this kind of stuff, right? So so then the emphasis became like, no, no, don't fight your thoughts. Don't challenge your thoughts. Just accept them, observe them, have equanimity around them. Also not bad. Like, insight's not bad. Rationality's not bad. Accepting things just as they are isn't bad. Mindful awareness of your thoughts ain't bad. And exposure to fear until it doesn't have as much of a grip. you. All that isn't bad. But the, as you said in the beginning, Joshua, the the, the the missing piece through a lot of this has been just understanding that it is in our nature to transform through the experience of compassion. It's in our human nature to feel calmed and soothed and stabilized when we're in the presence of the experience of care and caring, and that, you know, they call it, in in Buddhist psychology, one of the definitions of compassion is bodhisatta, which is like the naturally awakening altruistic aspiration for all beings to be liberated from suffering. And that doesn't mean that they don't experience bad stuff if they're living if if they're living things, but that 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 their understanding. Can be so deep and so wide and their loving connection to all life can be so deep and so wide the heart can be so wide open that it stabilizes even in the presence of great threats and that's true like people in a battlefield like soldiers in a battlefield they don't fight for country we know from a lot of research and a lot of reports they fight for each other and the things that allow us to have the strength to go through exposure and response prevention. If you have OCD or something like that, it's what matters to us. It's what we care about. And that caring is related to care. It's related to the emotion of caring and that caring instinct, the compassion instinct, the compassion drive, if you will. It, and it changes everything. It, 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 it It's like a superpower and it's, just so important and transformational. So it's not like it's not, it's cool to do cognitive restructuring when you need it. It's good to have mindful awareness and metaphors. And I mean, there's so many therapy techniques that I've seen and that we use. And I've met with so many clients for so many thousands of hours. And when someone is able to touch that part of themselves that has a loving, open heart, So much becomes possible that just didn't even seem possible. It it just changes everything.
0: Yeah, it's really beautiful. Mm. Um, It has that advantage, you know, of being a a really nice way to talk about you know humans and some of our capabilities. Yeah. So you know, we've probably really wet the listener's appetite for the the huge benefits of of compassion, especially if they suffer from anxiety or other ailments. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the cultivation of it and some of the techniques that are in the book. One of them that struck me as novel because I hadn't bit, really been exposed to it before was the the stuff you do with your imagination. And I think you make a really good point in the book that we can imagine all kinds of things and those things can do all kinds of or can lead to all kinds of different emotions. Like you can imagine you know, a bunch of snakes in your bed, and that will scare you. Uh, So why not imagine something awesome or super comforting um, or soothing, because maybe it'll have that sort of effect. And uh, I practiced and I did one of the ones where you imagine, I can't exactly remember what it was called, but it's like the image of the most soothing version of yourself or even some other person or being and sort of imagining being embraced by it or accepted by it or like feeling it's loved and yeah I did that it felt really good
1: I'm so glad and I love the image of the snakes in the bed like I could feel my own back like "Eh." you know (laughs) it just it just is such an amazing thing that we kind of take it for granted you know like you imagine your favorite food and you really picture it and what it would smell like and your body if you do that for just a little while like 10, 15, 30 seconds, your body will start to have gastric juices and it's like ready for that food. You know, it gets hungrier, you know. Or if we sometimes we'll do this exercise in a group training, and like we we everybody closes their eyes, they focus on their breath, and they remember a really beautiful time where somebody was they loved was with them and they're joking around and the person looked at them and smiled and told them a joke. And you can't help but feel your you feel your muscles of your face like form a smile. Or if people like Hear a scary story, you know they, they're motivated. So, wisdom traditions the world over, like they really have known this for a really long time. And uh, in in Japan, in Esoteric Buddhism, it was called uh, Sanmitsu or Mikyo. And in in Buddhism in Central Asia and Tibet, you know, the Vajrayana form of Buddhism or Tantric Buddhism has lots of imagery. That evokes these capacities and mantra and 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 music and statues and and things that evoke these images and lots of meditations where people kind of imagine these beings and guru yoga and like older like techniques from like vedanta and samkhya philosophies all over the world shamanic traditions you you they call it like you become the god form you know like it's like It's a part of Kabbalah. It's a part of all the world's wisdom traditions. It's what we see people doing when they're acting, you know, like we're evoking the dimension of our being that we wish to be. We're turning on the algorithm that will lead to like greater liberation and awakening. We're practicing being the version of ourselves we wish to be through our imagination and our embodiment. And that exercise you described, the compassionate self meditation. It's like, I love it. It's a, it's entirely secular. It doesn't ask any beliefs. You don't, it doesn't have to attach to any, you know, religion or belief system. Beautifully adapted kind of uh, by Paul Gilbert. And, you know, everybody does their own version of it. But it's just finding a version of yourself that has wisdom, strength, and commitment, and that is caring and caregiving and imagining it, embodying it. What would it be like to become that being? How would you walk in the world? How would you act? There's a great uh, video called, you could look it up on YouTube, uh, Compassion for Voices video. And it was made, you know, with the voice hearing movement in UK for people who, you know, are schizophrenia or live with schizophrenia or who are voice hearers, hearing. But it doesn't matter. It could be any kind of voices, you know, like if you didn't know that, you'd think it was just our inner monologue when you see the video. And it just illustrates this whole process of training the mind and using imagery to evoke our compassionate way of being. And I'm so glad you enjoyed it, like that that practice.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm glad to uh, I'm glad to have found it, and and for your contribution. Something something else that struck a chord with me on sort of around pages 68 and 69 is how can, compassion can maybe help us unpack anxiety which to to my I don't know if I would say surprise but something I've realized in myself is that anxiety rarely is like this pure fear like there's often at least for me especially if it's not just like a snake's <laughs> if it's something mm-hmm. more complicated like social relationships things in in the in a human life there's stuff underneath there there, there there's frustration there's sadness um, maybe there's self-loathing or there just it, it, there there tends to be stuff underneath it, and um, I'm curious about how compassion can help people sort of unfold this fear origami and 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 maybe see what's inside. You know, that's another. You've got excellent questions.
1: Um, the short and maybe a little too technical of an answer is that threat and anxiety narrow is our focus and narrow is the available behavioral repertoires. That's one of the primary functions of threat detection is its repertoire narrowing. So that you pay attention to the to what you need to pay attention to. So we're having a lovely conversation, you know, we're pretty focused on the topic But if we wandered away or if I said, hey, listen to some of that guitar music right now, or if we, you know what I mean? Like if we went on Zoom, it was like, let's have a watch party for Schitt's Creek. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like any of those things, we could do them. We're not going to do that, but we could. But if there was like all of a sudden, you know, like somebody, like a bear burst into my room, (laughs) you know, Like all of my attention would be on, hey, it's great talking to you. Gotta go. You know, like there would be a bear in the room. Like that would be pretty important that I put all of my attention on it and all of my attempts, any behaviors would be like dealing with that threat. Right. And that threat detection system happens for real threats, but it also happens for, you know, what anxiety is. And anxiety is like a threat response to things in the mind. Fear is a threat response to things in the outside world. It's how we use that word. And anxiety is you know, a, a threat response to mental symbolic or, rep, you know, representations. And our our neural network, our, our like cognitive, you know, uh, verbal network, it, it's designed as a network, it's interrelated. So when you have threats, whether they're social threats or physical threats, or they're real or imagined threats, when that threat system is activated, bloop, your brain is going to have a narrow focus. Now, the thing that emotional safeness, caring, caregiving and care receiving, activation of affiliative networks, activation of the polyvagal complex, when we have a rest and digest and tend and befriend network going, what happens is we slow down and we have broader attention and we have broader behavioral flexibility. Psychological flexibility proceeds from emotional safeness and affiliation and caring. And what, what then happens is we can take perspective, we can mentalize, we can have empathy, we can have sympathy, and we can experience thoughts as thoughts as what, as what they are, not as what they say they are. So insight, perspective, and wisdom are possible under conditions of emotional safeness Even in the presence of actual threat, which is weird, if you think about it, like fearlessness, the ability to not be gripped by fear, to some degree emerges when we care, like rushing into a burning building, you know what I mean? Because you're going to save someone. That's compassion creating fearlessness, creating flexibility in the presence of not just anxiety, but actual danger. So to directly return to your question that capacity for insight disentangling things the clear seeing it's referred to in buddhist psychology clear seeing uh, the, the the famous uh, book by the Dalai lama is called kindness clarity and insight you know and kindness can lead to clarity and lead to insight compassion leads to clarity and leads to insight it's it's an astonishing thing
0: yeah it really is quite, quite something. I feel like on the journey that I've been on, I keep thinking I find the thing. You know, like mindfulness was the thing, or like uh, exposures for my OCD was the thing, and now compassion. Like I'm really interested in it. And I, I wonder, you know, where this sort of buffet sampling of cool and interesting um, ways of living. I wonder, you know, where where it will take me next, or, oh. or maybe that this is it.
1: Well, you know, they're facets of the same diamond, honestly. Like, they're aspects of your consciousness coming to know itself. And they go well together. Like, my wife says, like, you know, uh, compassion folks therapy uh, plays plays well with others and shares its toys, you know. Like, so, I do a lot of exposure and response prevention. And I do a lot of mindfulness training and I do a lot of compassion training. And, you know, you get grounded you slow down, you cultivate a personal practice so you can stabilize, you imagine yourself as a compassionate being who is going to face fears, You then you begin the ERP, you evoke the fear, feared fantasy, if it's a pure O kind of OCD thing, or let's say a young man I worked with years ago who had a fear of battery acid. And so then after the grounding, after the compassionate mind training, After the mindfulness, like now let's really hold these batteries that have a little, you know, acid crust on them and let's really fully experience together, together, this fear and this threat of like, oh, it's going to poison me, the contamination fear. And now let's set it down and breathe and be present. Maybe we cry, maybe we shake. And then what if we evoke the compassionate mind again and we feel like nurtured and supported, and even proud of what was accomplished, and what if that's how we learn to respond to an intrusive thought, like with that degree of resolute, loving strength? It's a hell of a way to ride, and it's like, it's nothing new. It's, it's, It's just wisdom and practice.
0: What you, I mean, what you just said, uh, I mean, almost inspired tears in myself because that was just such a, a beautiful way to to describe. I I think what you're saying to be like the wisest way to do an exposure. I've never heard, you know, someone des- describe how to go about doing ERP with such sort of gentleness and um and care. I mean, that is just it's it's incredible what you've just said.
1: Well, thanks, and it's. To the degree that that was meaningful to you, it's owing to the work that my clients have done and what we've done together. And it's hard won by them and by us together because we've had to be in the presence of terror together. And, you know, as a person with PTSD, like I get it, I know what it's like to feel like to ugly cry, (laughs) as the kids say, to like be so terrified that you don't think that life makes sense anymore. And to be so ashamed to feel these feelings that maybe you think you shouldn't feel. And like, how can you be a human and do ERP? Once you've, once you got it a little, you know what I mean? Like once you get the joke (laughs) and you know that like, Hey, wait a minute, man, like it's a false choice to be loving Or courageous. It's a false choice to do real rigorous exposure. Like, it's scarier to do open hearted ERP. (laughs) It's actually scarier. It's more intense. It's not avoidant, but it begins and ends. It has like a beginning and an ending that is in compassion. So, like, I just love that you're like sharing your experience. And you're a part of a big family, man, like of of people who are walking this road together. And and I think it's important for us to remember that together.
0: Totally. Totally. Yeah, that's awesome. So, um, yeah, we've already talked for quite a bit, and I want to be respectful of your time. So let's say someone wants to engage a compassion-focused therapist. This book, I am assuming, is a good start, or or, or where else should they look? That's a good beginning
1: and um our website mindfulcompassion.com has it's going to have a, a, more and more resources but right now if you go to the section that says resources the tab of resources and you click on meditations there's a you know there's over 5 hours of different guided meditations from compassion focused therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy and the dharma that we recorded there in other books and in that book so that's a good place to check them out there's the uh, CompassionateMind.co.uk, which is the British Compassionate Mind Foundation, um, and there's you know if the, if you started with those two links, uh, we we can help you find people to do this kind of therapy with, or self guided kind of resources, and hopefully we'll have more and more things available as this as we try to grow this approach.
0: Yeah, totally. I, I really think that by making, you know, compassion, sort of like a first class citizen, right? A, mm. a seat at the table really helps to not let it slip through the cracks because, and, and I would, I kind of would just be curious about your professional opinion, but like what percentage or like how much, and I've been to like the IOCDF, the um, OCD Foundation's Mm -hmm. thing in in Texas a couple years ago, like how much of ERP is being done with compassion in mind or, or how much of it is it's kind of an afterthought? Very little.
1: I would say a ton of ERP is done in a compassionate way by compassionate people who are using best practices of behavioral psychology. And many, many of them are aware of mindfulness and many are even like aware of self-compassion. And, and you know, there's a, you may have seen on YouTube a, a keynote I did it. at I, uh, the International OCD Foundation. I love that organization. My friends, Lisa Coyne uh, and Jeff Samansky, Kimberly Quinlan, Shailen Nicely, John Hirschfeld, all of them are people I just love. And I love that group. Uh, so there's a lot of people who, are kind of aware of self compassion and are aware of the utility of doing these things compassionately. But very, very few people doing ERP with a specific compassion imagery component to it. Like just very, very few. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're trying to do something about that and trying to get the word out. and train as many people as we can and encourage research and
0: it'll happen. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's terrific work. I'm super excited about it. So Dr. Church, yeah, I've had you on for close to an hour now. Is there anything else that you wanted to highlight or, or, you know, give a voice to any upcoming projects or things you want to put out into the world?
1: Yeah. You know, um, I'd like, if you're listening to this and any of this is spoken to you, like part of me would like to say, go to my website and go to Twitter and, you know, look at the books I wrote or blah, blah, blah. But, it, you know, I'm not just saying this to, it's really not about me. And, and I certainly, I'm, you know, I'm not the, uh, I'm not the guy who came up with any of this or the person who came up with any of this. And it's all ancient. And science just validates it. So if you really want to do something, pick a practice, like even if you pick it from our website or somewhere else, and like really do it for a week. Like if you do the self-compassion break from Kristen Neff's website or if you do the Centering Rhythm Breathing or Soothing Rhythm Breathing from our website, give yourself 10 minutes a day for a week or two of a mindfulness practice. And then do one of the compassion imagery practices, like just a few times, you know, Read a little bit about this. Do something kind for yourself. Like, return again and again to what you need to heal and pursue your recovery and your transformation. Because, like, every one of us that heals and transforms and shares it with even one other person, we're doing our job. We're, like, beginning to pay the debt for having a human body. We're, we're beginning to free ourselves. And you matter, if you're listening to this, you matter probably more than you realize. And you're probably harder on yourself than you ever, ever needed to be. And the answer can be in being loving to you and the people around you and like, get free. Because we don't have enough time. And you getting free is like infinitely more important than you checking out my shit. So (laughs) get free. And if you're stuck reach out to people like me, like Josh, who are around you, who like, we just want to help each other. That's what I'd like to plug. I'd like to plug the listeners' personal liberation.
0: That's it. That's awesome. Well, Dr. Turch, thank you so much for your time. It's been really an enormous pleasure to have you on the podcast.